1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Tamara Chin about her new book, which I'm really excited about, Savage Exchange, Han Imperialism, Chinese Literary Style, and the Economic Imagination. This came out in 2014 with the Harvard University Asia Center. Now, this is the fourth time that I'm recording this intro because I'm so excited about this book that each time I've tried to do this, I have gone on and on and on about all the wonderful things about it. Um, So I'm going to keep it really short this time and just Say, I love this book. It's an important book. It's a path-breaking, really brilliant and thoughtful book, and you should go out and get a copy and read it. Why? So it looks at early China in a particular period. This is largely focused on the reign of Han Emperor Wu, who reigned from 141 to 87 BCE. And what it does is it looks at documents from this period, and documents include not just um, excavated and received texts, but mittens and coins and other kinds of material artifacts. And It looks at these documents from a perspective that brings together, puts into dialogue, and mutually informs both literary studies and a sort of comparative literature approach that looks at the aesthetics and literary qualities of text in a really fine-grained way, and a political and economic historical approach that's concerned with um, markets and economy and uh, global trade and frontier histories. And it makes these two modes of reading speak to each other in a way that really opens up and and troubles in all the best possible ways how we understand early China, how we understand how to read texts and which texts to read together in early China, and really how we understand what can be considered under the rubric of kind of economic history and economic studies. It's a beautifully written book. Um, I just, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So I hope you enjoy. It was really a pleasure to talk with Tamara. Um, and I'm both grateful for her time and I'm also grateful for your time. Um, so thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. And uh, yeah, see you soon. I'm here today to talk with Tamara Chin about her really, really, really fantastic new book, Savage Exchange. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Tamara. Thanks for making time. Thanks for writing an awesome book. And thank you for being here. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks, Carla. So could you start us off, Tamara, by saying a little bit about your background and specifically, how did you come to work on early China?
0: Well, it. I came to early China by a slightly circuitous route. Um, I've always been interested in antiquity and the politics of antiquity. And I originally started in classics and then, um, I went to graduate school in comparative literature because I wanted to actually work on uh, comparative Greek and Chinese, uh, geography, ethnography, and, uh, those sorts of topics. And while I was, uh, uh Beginning uh, work on uh, early Chinese texts, I realized I really needed to work on early Chinese texts, and I basically ended up having to really retool and 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 go through the text f- uh, properly. And so the dissertation ended up being a, a, a dissertation entirely on uh, Chinese texts. And ever since, more or less since graduate school, I've just ha- I've just had to. Um, work on Chinese text, but I'm you know, looking forward in the future to, to, to coming back again to um, more comparative uh, themes. But uh, that's how I, I, I got to the field originally.
1: Great. Well, thank you. So the book that we're talking about today is both At the same time, a contribution to several genres, and also a work that, in many ways, in many ways transcends genre in all the best possible senses of that description. So, it's a kind of literary political economy of early China. Um, It's a it's a book that focuses on the reign of Han Emperor Wu, and this is a period that, as you. Tell us in the book is significant and significant for the focus of the book in part in that it marks in your words, uh, China's earliest expansion of monetized markets and the largest scale, its extension of frontiers in Chinese imperial history. So in this period what's happening with this expansion is that officials and scholars are taking the figure of the market as an inspiration for reform and kind of discussions of relationships between the frontier and the market are taking place at the same time and are really embedded within discussions about the relationship between the word and the written text. Okay so I'll pause there because there's a lot <laughs> more to say. It's a fascinating fascinating study. So tomorrow what brought you to this particular kind of of focus, um, and perhaps a focus on economy um, specifically as the central motivating force of this work. Well, I uh,
0: I started out mainly thinking about um, political expansion, um, as I mentioned before. I'd originally thought of I was i have been interested in the Silk Road actually since childhood. I'd, I'd, I had the opportunity to travel a fair amount in China, and there was always this idea that I could somehow connect, you know, China and Greece in some way. And I was interested in histories of contact. And I thought for my dissertation I would look at representations of the foreigner, and that's what the dissertation was really about. And uh, there's a significant change during the Han Dynasty because of imperial expansion. When you start getting, you know, the earliest um, uh, extended forms of representations of foreigners. So it's a distinct change in, in the tone and in, um, and in the format, in the genre. Um, but what I found was unlike in the kind of paradigmatic cases of ways in which ethnography is studied in um, in literary departments, and, uh, especially as modeled by, say, Said's um, Orientalism or, 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 uh, or Mary Louise Pratt's work, it wasn't so clear cut in some of the texts that I was reading, or at least in the in the Shiji text, that um this kind of ethnography was preparing the way for expansion in exactly the same way. And so what troubled me was the the, the ways in which the texts I was looking at precisely to look for ethnography weren't troubled by this sort of alien inferior foreigner. Uh um, at the moment of expansion so much as they were troubled and anxious about issues around exchange and things and the traffic in um, uh, objects that was uh, accompanying expansion and that was um, a product of the need to massively expand um, uh, state-regulated markets and to um Uh, expand uh, 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 local and long-distance markets in order to finance uh, expansion into Central Asia. So post-dissertation, basically... um, I began to pursue what was there in the texts themselves, uh, as opposed to what I sort of went in there, you know, looking to find in the way that I sort of looked at Herodotus or, you know, looked at you know nineteenth-century texts or what have you. Uh, So it was really something I wasn't expecting to have to look at, and and sort of since then, it's it's it's, I've been very much drawn into thinking about. Uh, literary approaches to the economy, cultural approaches to the economy, so I've had to do a lot more reading around uh, anthropological work around the histories of uh, uh, ways of thinking about uh, economic thought. So there was a reorientation of the the work that meant a rewriting, actually, of, of the entire dissertation. So... Uh that's, that's what happened, actually, <laughs> which is why it took so long to write. I mean, unfortunately, it's it's one of those books that, uh, that, that took longer than it should have.
1: Oh, no, no. I mean, I think, um, you know, there are so as somebody just speaking as somebody who reads a lot of academic books, right, you can tell when or it's very clear when there's a book that should have taken a long time to write and was absolutely worth taking whatever time it needed and this is that book i mean this is a book that just for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it this is going to be a classic book you know this is not just a first book this is potentially a field changing book and i think it sounds like whatever transformations needed to happen from the dissertation to this and whatever time that needed to take um i, I for one i'm really glad you took the time because <laughs> it's an amazing <laughs> thank you carla <laughs> So you've already really um, talked a little bit about the transition from dissertation to book, and it sounds more like a transformation, really, um, from kind of the ground up than a transition. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think you know, I, I um, one one of the, I was I was fortunate uh, along the way after uh, um, completing the dissertation to spend a year, or I spent actually it was a semester at um, the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World at NYU. With a bunch of mainly archaeologists, and they were all archaeologists except for me. Who and they all worked on frontiers and all bits of sort of Eurasia, and they were uh, looking at issues around exchange in, in different ways and, and thinking about the material world in ways that really helped me to make this transition uh, in another way. So that that was part of what also both slowed down but helped um, the process along the way in thinking about material history. Um, which is why it, it became less li- literary as well <laughs> along the way. <laughs>
1: So the book itself is very transdisciplinary and it's also based on an archive that's extraordinarily plural. So what it does among other things, we'll just kind of start to get into it, it brings kind of literary scholarship and scholarship on kinds of representation including visual representation into a conversation with more kind of political, historical, economic studies of China and in doing so it bases the research on an archive that includes received texts, excavated texts, and kinds of documents that are made of fabric, mittens, coins, um, other kinds of material objects. So it's a really diverse, uh, really, I think, wonderfully diverse archive that it's based on. You mentioned in the very um, introduction to the book that, among other things, one of the kinds of work that the book does is to take two fields that don't often speak to each other, and not just make them speak to each other, but make them learn from each other in terms of the process and methodology of the field. So it both, in your words, challenges linear narratives of Chinese empire that are derived from traditional interpretations of Han literary texts, right? So some Mm -hmm. Han early um, Chinese literary studies, but also showcases the benefits of a more, as you put it, literary and cultural approach to economic history. So what happens mm-hmm. really if we make these two fields speak to each other? And I think that's one of the really beautiful things about the book. And it's one of the things I think we'll talk about much more. Okay. So the so let's get right into it because there are a lot of amazing chapters and I want to make sure we have time to get through them. <laughs> so the the chapters of the book um, are kind of broken up into two parts. The first three chapters of the book, um, each look at discursive genres. So philosophical kind of master's dialogue, epidectic foo. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but we're just going to go with it and you can <laughs> <the editor>. Absolutely. <laughs> and historiography. And the final two cha- or the, the final two chapters rather before the coda look at social practices and those include kinship and money. OK, so they collectively argue for the significance of literary innovation. So this is not just about sort of economic stuff it's, uh, that's you know, in the realm of physical exchange of physical things, but also um, sort of economy of terms, economy of language, economy of ideas uh, and literary innovation within political economic debate. Okay, so let's get into genres. Now, the first three chapters of the book look at what you call the symbiotic relation between the politics of literary genre and expansionist economics. And the first chapter focuses on the the genre of the philosophical master's dialogue. Now, this chapter introduces the context of debates over frontiers and markets. And just to kind of speak back to something we mentioned a little earlier Um, because the scale of expansion under Emperor Wu, right, and it's that reign period that you're focusing on, was so unprecedented, um, there were needs to finance it. And so the advisors turned um, to consider commerce and industry as ways to do that. So the chapter focuses on two texts that both use the dialogue form and juxtapose them to kind of show important contrasts. So let's dive in. And I'm just going to kind of open things up and ask you to talk about whatever you think is important Right about some of these Mm -hmm. texts. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. so the first text is the Qingzhong chapters of the Guanzi. So, for listeners, can you introduce what's going on in this text and what's important for us to understand about this text to understand the larger argument you're making here in this chapter? Uh,
0: Thanks, Carla. The uh, uh, the 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 Guanzi is uh, generally seen as the uh, uh, earliest. theory of um it's the earliest the sort of foundations of chinese economic thought it's it's a set of texts from it was compiled around uh the time of emperor Wu, sort of 31st century bce that um the the dialogue form and unlike any text that i know of in the ancient world actually propose a theory a quantitative theory of um of economics so even though say in in um Ancient Greece, Hellen- Hellenistic Egypt or uh, 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 on India, you find um, you may uh, you have text uh, uh, ec- um, economic theories. Um, they don't promote uh, thinking about economic value or monetary value in strictly uh, quantitative terms. So we find what's what's now called the earliest quantitative theory of money in in these children chapters. That is a theory of price that um, uh, uh, is um, determined by the relative quantities of uh, uh, things and money uh, circulated at any given time. Uh, we find these sort of strangely modern ideas in these texts uh, that you don't find elsewhere, even though that, you know, they have merchants and uh, documents uh, elsewhere in uh, the ancient world. You don't find a, a, a theory um, that uh, of, of uh, uh, quant- a quantitative theory in the same way. And I was struck by this and I was struck by the um Two aspects of these texts, not only as they teach the Han reader how, for the first time in Chinese um, thought, how to think about the world, how to value um, uh, exchange, not in terms of um, its of of uh, of how it can best serve society, that is, in terms of litia, uh, uh, in terms of ritual propriety, and and so forth, but in terms of how to maximize profit, how how to best benefit, um, uh, how how to think about. The, the universal laws uh, of the market, and this was new and unusual. And on the one hand, it was it was sort of teaching these economic theories, and on the other hand, it was also using. Um, uh, so I saw a um, a new kind of rhetorical idiom. It was not only using strange new terms, um, uh, "qingzhong" being one of them, sort of literally light and heavy, but it's also translated as. Uh, uh, ratios, uh, price ratios, or um, uh, 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 theories of value. Um, It was uh, also uh, using strange new uh, 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 generic uh, kind of ticks, like uh, uh, creating a semi-fictional world using personifications at a time (laughs) when, at a time when, you know, this, this was not the norm. In, in, in classical Chinese writing, it's it's you get it maybe in drones or something like that. But uh, that's always seen as something slightly suspicious. And most uh, um, of these master's dialogues that it, uh, that the form itself is, is usually based on, you know, historical figures. And instead, it was using these strange uh, figures like, um, you know, Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Uh, estimate and Measure, literally, this is the, this is the, the term <laughs> used, and Mr. Calculate Y, uh, 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 um, as these figures who become the authorities within these texts, the masters within these texts uh, in teaching the reader how to understand the market. So what was weird for me about this text and what really hadn't been talked about by um Theorists of uh, or his economic historians were the only people really reading these texts. Was these these sort of literary aspects of the text that were doing something different, precisely in order to teach uh, the, the hand reader about issues of credit, credit, you know, fiat currencies and, and so forth. So that was what I found strange about this this sort of foundational text in, in Chinese economic theory. That was you know is also disregarded in. Uh, any kind of uh, history of economic thought that you buy in a regular book bookstore, which you know only f- sort of goes from Aristotle on, it, it sort of ignores anything in the Chinese tradition, uh, or even in Chinese history of Chinese economic thought, which sort of overlook these these rhetorical aspects of the text. So I was sort of interested in how, thinking about how to bring these issues together, um, uh, which I thought was actually
1: important for what was going on at the time. So that that's the Guanzi text. Um, Thank you. And there's also, I mean, uh, along the lines of looking anew with different kind of readerly eyes at a text that might not look like a literary text, there's this really wonderful moment in that part of the chapter where you bring us into um, the text of a sort of directions to calculate a quantity that features a fox going through customs. That's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Which is just, so there's just great ways of like treating, you know, these um, uh, directions for calculation um, in the spirit of literary texts that I did that are really amusing and kind of awesome. So a fox goes through customs. I direct listeners to that. It's particularly awesome. So we have here, Um, The masters are these kind of personified, abstract economic principles, right? Mr. Calculate Y, Mr. Calculate and Measure. In contrast, you kind of juxtapose this with a very different kind of text that's also concerned with markets and frontiers, but actually has a very different approach. So what are some of the major differences between um, the Guangzhou, Qingzhong chapters and this other text, Debate on Salt and Iron, and why are those differences important for you? Um,
0: the, uh, debate in salt and iron is a much better known text, especially to, uh, historians of China, because it is one of the, um, uh, uh, dialogues that really illustrate the kinds, uh, it, it's, it's a purported, um, sort of historical account of a debate that took place, uh, soon after Emperor Wu's, uh, uh, death. That is a kind of, um, retrospective uh, uh, debate about how good he was in terms of uh, the market and um, of the frontiers. Now, uh, a couple of the key differences here is one, in, in this case, the, the, uh, this, the, the uh, author, who's um, uh, clearly identifies uh, uh, clearly promotes uh, what the the classical scholars who are who are on one side of the debate, and privileges them over the um, uh, emperor Wu's former economic advisor, who is clearly someone who's um, identified with someone who was the son of a merchant, was good at calculations, was, clearly was uh from other historical sources was a, a, a guanzian type a, guanzian, a guanzian, uh type uh economist and he was one who really masterminded the the the, the market expansion that to finance uh, market expansion to finance uh, economic imperialism um and in this text uh the debate on salt and iron we have um a, a, a celebration of uh of classicism itself, so that those who are the masters here that emerge out of this uh, debate are really the so called Wenxue, the so called classical scholars who endlessly cite from the classics, from uh, Confucius uh, and others, uh, to try to restore the um, uh, the, the, uh, ec- the 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 sense that the true expert for the emperor. Uh, uh, in thinking about how to uh, manage the, politico- uh, the political economy, both the markets and the frontiers, is no longer uh, the uh, economist. It's no longer, you know, the one with the economics degree. It's 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 the philosopher. It's it's the it's the classical scholar. Uh, it's a reassertion not only of this traditional figure, the, the the Mencius or the Confucius, as the person who best knows how uh, social community uh, should should uh, regulate. Um, uh, 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 value, but it's also it's it's an idea that's profoundly based in in text. And then again, again, they, they use these, um, this idea of of uh, the of the root of um, returning to fundamentals, returning to burn, as opposed to uh, commerce more. And this idea of returning to the root, returning to um, agriculture is paired with the idea of returning to the classical text. So what they're promoting is not only a return to a world without markets, which is what they are essentially doing, but also a world in which uh, classical texts were the basis of authority. It's not the statisticians. It's not the economists anymore. So it's both ideological, but it's also about uh, the place of of texts in the world. Whereas... As, as we saw with Guanzhou, uh, um, it, it, it's a sort of semi-fictional world that was no longer interested. It doesn't, the, Guanzian, the the, the Guanzhou texts don't cite from the classics in the way that uh, uh, The Debate on Salt and Iron does. It's, the, the, the Debate in Salt and Iron is a much more familiar text to, to a, 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 any reader of early Chinese texts, really. Great. And
1: so in the chapter, in this really beautiful way, by putting these two texts, which are not unknown texts, but are not usually read in this way, um, next to each other and in the same dialogue, you're, we're really getting to see these texts anew um, in, in, I think, really, really helpful ways. So similarly, the next chapter actually takes us into another genre, but does something, um, is is a similar kind of contribution. So this chapter focuses on a word I'm going to mispronounce, and you can pronounce out <laughs> Yep, that's that's, that's how I pronounce it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> great. Um, Epidectic Fu. Um, now these Fu often include lists of things. Um, you talk about this in the context of a kind of material poetics. And this chapter really centers on one in particular. This is Sima Xiangru's Fu on the Excursion Hunt of the Son of Heaven. This is the earliest Fu that is formally presented to the imperial court. Um, and it's a really amazing reading of this Fu in the context of uh, the idea of tribute and in the context of a larger discourse of economy and economics. So this chapter shows that this Fu, in your words, was structured around the economic metaphor of linguistic expenditure. So this idea of linguistic expenditure. Can you bring us into what you mean by linguistic expenditure here and talk a little bit about how to understand that in the context of what's going on in this fu? Uh,
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, The um, fu is a, a Structured also as a dialogue, uh, it's a prose poetic form that became the most popular literary um, genre during the Han Dynasty. Sort of um, shot to fame during this period. Um, the dialogue in in this particular form is between three imaginary figures, and again, there's this issue of personification: uh, vacuous, Master Improbable, and Lord No Such. <laughs> and um, what they do is um, boast. About the um, their three imaginary envoys of warring states, China uh, of of different states in warring state, state China, and they basically boast about the contents of their respective masters' um, uh, gardens. Um, and one of them, uh, the the last one, is. Um, the uh, envoy to the emperor. And so ultimately he's the one that wins because his is, is the biggest. And what's interesting is the way in which in, in the sort of prose sections between the, uh, the, the long poetic bits, which are sort of chock-a-block full of alliterative, um, rhyming and um, uh, rhythmically complex um, lists of exotica, basically, um, they basic, uh, basically criticize each other for how um, verbose... Their, their speeches are so we have um, a, uh, a, a resemblance made uh, a, a kind of self reflexive um, uh, 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 attention that, that, that that's that's given to the relationship between words and things. What they criticize each other for is for boasting, that is speaking too much. The issue here is, is, is really around length and ornament, that is between uh, speaking too much, too long, that, that their speeches are too long, and for speaking uh, too beautifully. And, you know, one of the, there, there are many different sort of adjectives for what, what this uh, idea of ornamentality in, in language looks like. Okay. Um, so the, the, the metaphor of linguistic expenditure is one that they use um, to describe the problem with each other's language, and so traditionally the criticism of this particular f- of, uh, uh, of fool uh, is that um, they uh, or what's strange about this epidectic fool is that they even though they criticize each other for each other's uh, lack of thrift, for each other's excessiveness, in language, which is also excessiveness in the size of each other's gardens, when they should be deferring to the emperor, um, these are the, uh, the the two sort of signal um, features of the fu that for which it is best known. So, what makes the fu so different from the two other main traditions, poetic traditions in in, in Chinese literary history, that is the the uh, the the, the uh, book of uh, classic of odes tradition and the elegies of true tradition is precisely that these these the sort of ridiculously long um uh, uh, um uh the ridiculous length of these of these poems and and also that the, the sort of very um ornate uh, aspect of them so that's um mm-hmm.
1: uh
0: the, the the issue of linguistic expenditure in there, that that has been uh the subject of, of sort of endless debate by um those who have criticized, you know, even through to the May 4th movement and, and, and beyond. And, you know, it was, it was a genre that was sort of burned in the Cultural Revolution. The um, the issue was that it was seen to reflect um, uh, a sort of uh, 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 an embrace of not only imperialism, since these exotica were exotic seen as tokens of... Um, Imperial expansion of 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 of, of, of booty uh, from expansion, but also of the love of of material things, of materiality. <laughs> um, uh, so it's it's a complex genre that plays with precisely the um, uh, the sort of the poetics that will emerge during the Han dynasty of this issue of whether it was thrifty enough or not. Um, I forgot to mention it at the very end of the poem. Um, of, of, the, of the final uh, uh, and, the, and the longest speech um, by, uh, within the fool, mm-hmm. the, the emperor sort of renounces his excessiveness, but it's always seen as coming too late. So this is this this is sort of a, a sort of arc, a, a structure to this fool that is seen as common, but is seen as being not enough, not thrifty enough for the reader. So this is these are the terms by which it's 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 normally uh, discussed uh, as a genre.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, and so it 's clearly I think for the listener, this is um, a really productive way of integrating this, co- this conversation into this broader conversation of economy right and of exchange and of spending and thrift Now one of the other things that 's really noticeable and, and really beautiful for me about this chapter is the attention to materiality in another sense, and so you have this really wonderful. Um, section of this chapter that looks at parallels between visual and verbal or sonic styles by comparing foo and visual sources. And you look at representations of sleeve dancers and of clouds. And I mention this because I think even if, even for this reason alone, the book is worth the price of admission, your attentiveness to sound and to the sonic and to translation in rendering these foo into English is really astounding. Um, just as a trans, uh, sort of an element of the translator's craft, your translations of these fu are amazing. Do you have any kind of sp- uh, comments on that? I mean, is that something <laughs> that you spend a lot of time on? It's just it's a really noticeable part of this chapter. That's very sweet of you. I mean, I, I mean, a couple of
0: things. That one, the the issue of the the, the material um, analogs was. Um, uh, I think that the, yeah, exactly. The sleeve dancers and 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 the clouds were the two I was looking at. And what I was interested in is in. Art. His, I've learned so much from art historians, and you know the ways in which they talk about changes in hand visual style. And there's you know a lot of attention to how the this, 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 the I think it's like the swirl or the swish of, of, of hand dynasty art is something that they look at. And what interested me is the way in which um, the kind of the sonic landscape, if you will, of of, of the fool is so particular, especially in, in its use around describing the, the kind of the, the swish and the swirl of the same kinds of um, things that, that feature in uh, in hand art, you know, the, the sleeve dances and so forth. And so what I was trying to do is um, uh, translating uh, these sort of euphonic sort of binomes, these, 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 this, this, um, uh, these word uh, forms that uh, are, that are strung together, this, these ways of using language that was unusual, um, the, the patterns of, uh, of, of sound that were used, uh, particularly in the uh, fu, and pioneered by Sumaxianru and then take, later taken up that was seen as characteristic of the fu. These kinds of uh, uh, sonic um, experiments, I wanted to try and uh, translate in a slightly different way from the way they usually are, which is uh, by finding... Um, a matching word, but by sort of iterating this, the soundscape. So I had things like frou-frou-flap-flap flap, or sussering or something. But I wanted to get the fact that, that some of these words sort of play on the edge of nonsense and new words or rare words. So I, I did play around with the OED a bit in, in finding words <laughs> that were, you know, just, just about on the edge of recognition a little bit. So I, I, I did I, – I'm glad you appreciated that. But, I, I you know, I'm, I it's not um, – uh, I, I did spend a little more time than I should have on it, but I, I didn't, it's, it's, I mean, there are some, it's not the the, the sort of, I think the, the normal way of going about a proper, you know, translation is to, you know, go through the, um, I, I relied heavily on the, on the work of other, other translators, put it that way. Um, so I was, I was playing around with it, with the soundscapes, but thank, thank you for bringing that up, oh, Carla.
1: Oh, no, I, I mean, I think it's great Um, in, among many other, for among many other reasons is it's sort of, You know, in a lot of scholarship on these foo, there's an attention to materiality insofar as look at all these objects, right? Like, look at this list of things. This really takes an attentiveness to the materiality to the next level by producing a material experience through the translator's craft insofar as you're creating a sonic landscape in your translation that really kind of speaks from and speaks to the kind of sonic materiality that comes out of the, um, the text you're translating from. So, um, yeah, what, I, I think it was awesome. So, the third chapter is the final chapter on a particular genre, and this focuses on the genre of historiography. Now, it shows how Han writers are using the genre of historiography to challenge or to reformulate what you call the ideal of agricultural tributary empire. Now, we haven't talked um, very much if at all, about this idea of a tributary relation, a tributary system, but that's very much something that kind of um, emerges throughout the book. So this chapter focuses on showing a contrast between um, the treatment of these issues in the Shiji and in the hanshu. And you are um, showing a particular concern with how, in your words, material accumulation— begins dissolving sort of classical hierarchical differences between the Xiongnu and the Chinese. So there's this really interesting way that I think the way you were um, describing the project from which this book emerged, right, The sort of original dissertation project, Mm -hmm. you can see kind of resonances of that here. So let's look at um, these texts in dialogue um, in that respect. The Shūji, as you're um, giving it to us here is considering a particular figure in a way, and its re- relation to the shangnu in a way that's really different from the way the Hanshu does it. So it's considering, um, in particular, the business person or the commodity producer— as a kind of ethical subject, as the moral center of the market. So in the Shiji, the state is not the moral center of the market; it's the business person, right? <laughs> and as a result of this, like as you put it here, Han envoys, not the Xiongnu, are the ones that require regulation. Okay, so can you kind of take us into this? What's what's critical about this aspect of the treatment of these issues by the shirji for us to understand the larger argument in this chapter? And how does the Hanshu's treatment of these issues differ? Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, the
0: It might seem at first a little bit odd that I'm pairing these two chapters um, or highlighting these two chapters, one about the shilnu, one about um, the account of the uh, money makers the, the, of the commodity producers as I, as I translate it the, um, I think both of them, just to go to your last question uh, are uh, uh, chapters that the, the Hanshul takes up copies but sort of reframes in, in different ways in, uh, uh, and rewrites them uh, by through through reframing them according to a different kind of plot that I call the sort of classical tributary plot that is for the Hanschuh, uh more like the sort of debate in salt and iron um, uh, uh, classical scholar. The, the, uh, the state uh, is ideally uh, agricultural, uh, uh, any markets are state regulated and uh, there's a, um, uh, the classical texts are the foundations for uh, the for, for um, uh, historical knowledge and, and for, 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 political, for political action. So it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of classical text, and in both and whereas what I'm finding in the in the Shiji, uh, in these two texts that uh, in, these, in the two chapters uh, which were both uh Tied to controversies around the Shiji as a um, a text that became partly lost during the Han dynasty, um, uh, what I was interested in, in was the way in which these two particular chapters—one, the, the business, the account of money makers—was. Uh, uh, condemned openly condemned by one of the uh, co- one of the co authors of the Hanshu, and the other chapter was uh, the account was uh was uh, as as uh, I think most people know uh, tied to um, uh, Sima Chen's own eventual uh, castration due to his being um, tied to um, a mis- well, tied to what he thought mistakenly being seen as uh, def- uh, defending a. A defector uh, to the Xiongnu. So there are these two chapters that are are tied to the the Hanshu's sort of negative evaluation uh, of the Shiji that the the Hanshu nevertheless takes up and reframes uh, quite explicitly. So what we have in the case of the the Shiji uh, and uh, the Xiongnu is an attention to the problem of ethnographic representation uh, rather than simply a representation of the alien other. The Hanshu, as I uh, argue sort of reframes that explicitly. It takes out this attention to, um, the, the envoys who are, uh, who are the problem. Uh, and instead just says, you know, the, 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 these Xiongnu can never be, um, corrected. And it, it sort of brings in a, a much more phobic later hand rhetoric of, of, of the, of the Xiongnu as the alien other. At the same time with the biography of the, of the money the moneymakers, it reframes these biographies, uh, that in the, in the, in the Shiji, was seen as um, more clearly as models of an ethical businessman of you know people who redistributed their their, their earnings uh, without the intervention of the state uh, into parables of voice, vice. So it uses its end comment to show how uh, these. Uh, 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 these uh, moneymakers basically uh, were led to social destruction and chaos. So it's what I'm interested in here. It's sort of the broader picture is how these key texts that historians, economic historians, political historians use to reconstruct the history of the political economy, um, uh, these two sources can't be read as one as they usually are, but there's a, 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 a tension between the two that uh, has something to do with what happens between the two texts. Um, and I, I wanted to, to, to draw attention to that. That's what that chapter is about.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. So we've, we've seen, I think, in each one of these three um, first chapters <clears throat> on genre, that each one of these is both taking us into a particular kind of text or a particular um, kind of narrative, but also showing that really uh, deep pluralities within that kind of narrative in the way that we can't really just trace a linear, unproblematic story about Han, you know, attitudes toward economics or literary texts. So the second half of the book and this, the last two body chapters of the book move from genre to practice, and this shifts us to studies of material and embodied practices, The first chapter, or chapter four, but the first chapter in this section, focuses on kinship. And in a really interesting way, what this is doing is putting into dialogue the history of the conjugal household unit, So the history of the conjugal household unit and the history of frontiers, and it's making these two kinds of history speak to each other. So chapter four argues that two of the most important developments in Chinese frontier history, this is imperial interstate diplomacy, or Heqin, and long-distance tributary trade across Eurasia, which um, you sort of speak of in the context of Silk Road, these originated in Discourses and Practices that importantly departed from classical ideals of kinship. So there's this really interesting story here about the ways that um, classical ideas of kinship and ideas of of trade and frontiers are informing each other by being sort of, uh, and we see that by them being juxtaposed in this chapter. Now, really interestingly, one of the figures that emerges in this chapter is the figure of the working woman, It's really striking, and it seems really important here. So, could you speak a little bit to that? What is happening here with the um, the idea of women's work um, and the way that's being multiply configured in this part of the book? Uh, Yeah, that's that's a great question. I um, was, I,
0: I what I wanted to think about was the recognition. You know, sort of as a sort of standard. Um, gender studies question: the, the recognition, non-recognition of women's work, and what was going on here. Um, it, often, when one thinks about gender history um, for you know early China, uh, especially from a literary perspective, you know that there are some set texts out there. Um, the uh, what happens in the, in the Han dynasties? You get these new writings for women. Um, uh, Ban Zhao's Precepts for Women, uh, Liu Xiang's, uh, uh, Biographies of Exemplary Women. Uh, these are well-known texts that became a model for, you know, women in, in future dynasties. And, um, what is so striking in, in, in reading them is the ways in which they, um, the women's work as, as several uh, several scholars have already pointed out is uh, uh, is valued for its uh, moral uh, 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 moral import um it's seen as um uh, a way of uh, of of uh, it's seen as a sort of wifely work it's a way of turning oneself into the virtuous wife and um what i was interested in is the way in which this is also these the sort of classicizing you know uh classicizing texts um uh if read in the way that I read them, um, really represented women as performing this traditional, um, work which they're tied to within the household. Um, and, um, as, and as privileging a certain kind of, um, uh, 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 spinning and weaving that was, uh, uh, very different from say the weaving of of brocade or gauzes and and, and things like that that it, it it was very much tied to um uh being uh, at home being a good wife and um uh, a good mother whereas uh what was sort of o- overlooked and is often seen as not being part of uh of, of this story of, of this rise of these uh new texts that became ever more concerned that the the, the woman's work the um represented as part of her wifely and motherly duties was, um, these you know, sort of quantitative, uh, the, sort of the Guanzian texts, the, the mathematical texts that talk also about women's work, uh, but in terms of maximizing, uh, uh, uh their economic value. And, uh, I was interested in thinking about these, uh, uh, Guanzian mathematical texts, you know, they have the mathematical texts have, have have questions like, well, if uh, a weaving girl doubles her product every day, how much will she earn in so many days? Right. And I was thinking, you know, well, what kind of person comes up with an idea like that? Certainly not a classicizing text like uh, 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 Liu Shang. And um, you know, historians, social historians have 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 shown the ways in which um, uh, women at this time were producing silk in in factories and manors and so forth, and um, silk. Textiles were the main commodity of, of, of markets, um, and you know, obviously, the the largest export uh, uh, commodity in, in in the long distance, so called silk, silk Silk Road uh, tributary trade. Um, so, the, you know, the the the, the what I was interested in is the ways in which these, these non-classical texts, uh, quantitative texts were also tying what a women, what women's, uh, the sort of, the, the max, the ways in which one could maximize uh, women's work was tied to, um, the conquest of foreign, of foreign places. So you get these sort of fables in the, in, in the dialogues of, um, harnessing the work of single women in order to, um, Produce enough silk in order to flood another market and 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 then gain more territory, so they're these strange imaginations of uh, of 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 world con- conquest of 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 conquering Tianxia through in through glutting the market through economic means which is the basis of the guantian idea is political domination world conquest through economic means so what It was this sort of imagination of um, uh, of 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 using uh, women's work in another way that seemed to be um, evacuated from any account of of of. of what the classicizing texts were doing to to uh, women's work there, so I wanted to, to sort of uh, uh, juxtapose this this um, tension between uh, uh, two approaches to, to women's work that was happening around 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 this time.
1: Great, thank you so much, and I think um, I hope it's it, it's certainly clear to me, um, and I'm sure it's clear to the listener that one of the really wonderful things happening here. And this is an example of something that happens throughout the other chapters of the book as well, is you're taking this idea of a frontier, right? Is that which um, kind of distinguishes characters through a boundary. And that frontier here is in an unexpected place, right? The frontier is in a place where, at least for me as a reader coming into this chapter, I wouldn't have been thinking of gender as a frontier that was being explored here right? And so there's a really Absolutely. interesting play, right? I mean, it's...
0: Absolutely. And and this whole idea that this new diplomatic um, uh, uh, protocol that's being set up in the Han dynasty involves this, this you know, intermarriage, which may seem natural if you look at, you know, it was happening in Europe, it was happening, you know, lots of places in, in later periods. But the, the debates around, you know, kinship, they didn't send the actual princess, they sent another one that, you know, the, the histories include this uh the ways in which um you know the wrong princess was sent out as part of this history and they and it it gets tied to um uh uh um debates of agenda in the hand court at that time so i was interested in the ways in which um uh uh this issue of the frontier and the issue of, of um ab- abnormal or aberrant kinship at, at the center were were being talked about at that time So
1: thank you. So before we get to the coda, there is another really again wonderful chapter, Um, and this is a chapter on money, okay? Now this chapter departs really um, interestingly, and I think importantly, from most existing scholarship on money during Emperor Wu's reign, and that is um, in so far as it highlights a lack of unity. Um, in meanings and practices of Han Dynasty money. So can you start us off here by speaking a little bit to the importance of um, this point, the lack of unity in these monetary practices? How is this um, departing from existing scholarship on, the, um, on money in this reign period? And why, for you, is it important to, to depart in that way and to emphasize this lack of unity? Uh
0: yeah the um i think most monetary histories or numismatic histories um take the um emperor Wu sort of well emperor Qin and emperor Wu between them sort of unified chinese currency and emperor Wu introduced the um uh uh coin that sort of circular coin with with a square hole as the sort of emblematic token of this new economy that um uh, that that that's become so sort of iconic of of of, of Chinese empire, and um, that's you know generally seen as what uh, what 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 matters in monetary history at this time. And what what I was interested in um, is that there were alongside the sort of uh, historical and sort of classical parables and accounts of money that gave, uh, different accounts of the origins of money. So you get a lot, a lot, a lot of new accounts of money where it came from. Did it begin in the very ancient period? Did, uh, merchants invent, did art, you know, did, with, did money originate in the markets or did it originate with, with an emperor? Uh, you know, different ways of, 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 um, these sorts of stories, uh, are are well-known parts of this monetary history. But what I was interested in was um, thinking about this alongside um, uh, three other uh, monetary practices, uh, namely... um, I think burial practices uh, of, of money that is sort of the spiritual domain and there, there are a lot of sort of excavated documents that showed that, you know, Han people saw, uh, a, um, uh, a sort of interactive dynamic relationship between, you know, the economy of the afterlife and the, and their present economy through all these sort of contracts to the dead and so forth. Uh, secondly, um, they, we're using experimental um, coin designs and so forth that did imagine. It seems um, a uh, 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 the use of Western uh, uh, coin designs. Usually, the Chinese numismatic tradition, the Western numismatic tradition, is seen as different. One use Western coins are silver and use pictures. Chinese coins are bronze and uh, 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 don't have pictures. But they, they, there seems to be some experimental experiments at this time in the Han Dynasty, just as uh, Han Envoys were encountering Western coinage. Um, and thirdly, there were these, again, the Guansian quantitative approaches to money that thought about, um, that imagined a world in which all currencies uh, were interchangeable. So, again, we have this Guanzian idea that you could have a fiat currency. Basically, there's uh, a new way of thinking about money that has didn't have anything to do with, um, you know, Giving money a meaning within um, classical history, so those are basically the sort of different sets of practices um, and uh, literary approaches that I kind of uh, tried to sort out. Um, that yeah, so that's it.
1: <laughs> so I think really interestingly, just as the chapter is expanding, what we think of when we think about money, right? What counts under these rubrics? And you're showing, you know, burial money, um, experimental minting, also classicizing money, right? Like t- uh, discourses that are talking about money's place in ethics and historiography and classical texts and the idea mm-hmm. of uh, quantified money. There's also a parallel thread in this chapter where this focus on coins is also challenging how we think about and what what we think about when we think about text, um, so one of the really interesting things that's happening here is that coins and, and various kinds of coins and various kinds of materials and ingots, etc., become documents. Um, silk mittens become documents. Other excavated burial goods become documents. And so, I um, think it would be great uh, if you could speak a little bit. To that, in terms of your methodology for this chapter, the kind of integration of material artifacts as documents, as texts, into this um, larger narrative that you are weaving, um, can you talk a little bit about the the challenges of that, the your attitude toward that, and why that's important to do for the particular kind of thing that you're doing here in this part of the book?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I um, guess. I had a lot of trouble with this chapter in the sense that um, in reading comparative accounts of money from, you know, uh, you know, Greece and South Pacific and so forth, the sort of the anthropological accounts, um, you know, there's a lot of work out there about um, whether we think about, um, you know, gift versus money economies and how those, that distinction does or doesn't hold. And in, in the Chinese case, Yeah, there's still a lot of debate about the beginnings of Chinese money, but I guess what, um, this issue of money as a text, um, is moot during this period because, um, people did not, uh, different handwriters were playing with, they were toying with the, uh, uh, the term B for money, which, um, could also be used for um offerings uh and that there the, the were ways in which um uh people at this time were, were rewriting monetary history uh by playing with different terms for you know exchange and so forth and different narratives of that so uh this isn't a very good answer to your question i guess um <laughs> The, the the larger stakes, I guess, is your question: is um, uh, mm-hmm. whether or not um, the sort of two structuring questions. You know, do we see Chinese monetary history as something separate from um, uh, Western monetary history? Do we see uh, ancient and modern monies as something separate? Those sorts of questions, you know, how, how how do we define money and so forth? These are all things I had to think about in this uh, um, chapter without laying out firm definitions, precisely because they were playing with money in different ways. Silk was used as a form of money, but that depends on how we define money. Do we, you know, there, there are different ways—special purpose, general purpose. There were, you know, different regions, things were used differently. So there were a lot of. Um, It was more of a sort of messing up of of easy histories than an easy kind of um, uh, discussion of it. I think the bit that gets to the issue of the text is in the classicizing section of this chapter where I talk about um, the discussion of the one of the inscription on coins as being the focus of anxiety for historians and classicists who use that. The issue of when, as being uh, to, to talk about the sort of classic anxiety you get in, in you know, many economies, the Roman economy, Renaissance Britain, of um, the tension between material substance and uh, inscribed value. So, the the issue of when also becomes uh, a way in which uh, historians, uh, historiographers, hand historiographers, and historiographers and writers talked about the, what what when really was meant to mean. And this issue of one, as it merges through my book, I think is, um, is one of these sort of iconic, uh, uh, terms that's, uh, uh you know, sort of literary decorum, culture, and so forth, civilization that seemed to emblematize, you know, Chinese China itself and how we should think about Chinese literary culture. And that was one of the issues that I was sort of taking, uh, uh, taking to task a little bit, just questioning uh, through this study. So in, in that way, this issue of when, uh, uh, features in, in, in this, uh, in this chapter.
1: Great. Thank you. And I, and I think, um, to just kind of add to that, also just the issue of what counts as one, right? What counts as writing is also one that emerges really interestingly from your own practice of integrating documents that are not just, you know, written text on um, obvious textual you know, the, the obvious kinds of media that you would write text on, but also these sort of mittens and you know woven inscriptions and things like right. that. Right. Yeah. So I, the practice, I think, um, that uh, the practice that you're bringing to bear for the research on this chapter also really interestingly mirrors the troubling of that category that exists as a trip throughout the book.
0: Yeah, th- absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm learning a lot from sort of art historians and so forth, you know, but okay. um, yeah, doing, doing my best. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. So as we come to the end of the book, we come to a coda um, that is not to be missed. Um, this is a coda called counter-history, connected histories, and comparative literature. And in this coda, you're making some really interesting and really important general um, arguments about the benefits and the importance of doing a kind of work or kinds of work that are, I think, really modeled in this book um, for a number of different fields that you're speaking to. So I'll just, um, because, just in the interest of not keeping you for another couple of hours, I'll just ask you um, if you might speak to just a couple of them because they seem um, really, really important, especially for our listeners. Um, So you make the point here that it's important for comparative literature to pay attention to pre-modern histories of contact. Um, And I know that this is part of, I mean, the book really speaks to and speaks from a larger field of, you know, what sometimes alternately is considered Silk Road studies, Silk Road histories, contact histories, connected histories. So in light of bringing um, those sorts of studies into dialogue with more sort of comparative literature, or literary studies, can you speak to that point? Um, Why should comparative literature pay attention to pre-modern histories of contact and what uh, what might that do to change the field? Um, I
0: guess... um, this comes from my, you know, original dissertation idea that I would do sort of a Greek-China comparison, and it's, it's been one thing that you know I I, I I I respect a lot of work that's come out in this tradition, and I I, I do do classes, you know, doing this sort of stuff. Um, but I uh, one of the um, uh, aspects of this 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 project, which you know, it's it's important in its own right, uh, that. Um, Uh, you know generally seeks to undermine sort of easy comparisons east does this west does that one of the issues i found was that there's uh in comparative literature there's often a uh a sort of um distillation of the source text the base text uh of comparison to um a set of uh of of generally sort of Confucian classics, um, uh, especially poetic texts, a set of genres, and um, it, this, this, these, the kinds of um, uh, one of the, the problems that, that I was trying to uh, redress was to build on the on sort of on each side was you know the, the movements you know what inspired me as sort of undergraduate in Greek stuff was you know the work. The shifted classics into basically Mediterranean studies, and the ways you know the the, the work by you know Burkert and other people like that, that that looked at you know Greece's relationship with other other periods, or later later Hellenistic work that that ties um, Greece with the Near East. And I was interested on and on the China side with uh, you know aesthetic studies of uh, China's relationship with um, you know say Sanskrit and, and and so forth. And what was getting lost in these sort of complete Studies of the uh, of the earlier sort of pre-Tang period was um, this kind of larger acumen equim- through which uh, these literary histories developed. Often, sort of the poetic tradition or the literary tradition is sort of seen as uh, unfolding in a vacuum. And this, to me, seemed to iterate a kind of axial age, you know, un- unintentionally so, uh, to, to, to iterate a kind of axial age civilizations. Um, uh, mode of comparison, even as a sort of undermining, deconstructing and whatever it was. I was just, and, and I think back to your earlier question um, about, you know, the, the stakes in thinking about texts, um, material texts and literary texts is that it, 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 the, the sort of archaeologists, frontier archaeologists is sort of at the forefront of, of showing how much contact that really was. Um, and in sort of thinking about issues of contact, there's a way in which um, one can think about aesthetic history, literary, literary histories so as something that don't develop out of sort of um, essentialized, um, uh, 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 in, essentialized sort of monolithic cultural trad- traditions. And I, I guess I've been pushing, my, my book sort of pushes too much, this, hist- this need to historicize literature. So it was my my sort of new historicist um, way of thinking about what was needed to be done if um, I wanted to bring uh, pre-modern literatures into, to, into sort of comparative literature uh, in ways that hadn't already been done um, as much as uh, I hoped. And uh, you know, obviously uh, other people are, are working on this too, but this is something that um, I, I was hoping to contribute
1: to. Great. Thank you so much. And, and I think one of, um, you know, along the lines of thinking about, thinking anew about, and thinking with comparison, I mean, the book also shows us a model for how um, comparative literature, comparative history can also be happening and be a kind of methodology that allows us to see within what otherwise might look like it's one kind of linguistic context, right? <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, it enables
0: one to see and recognize the hybridity that's that's always there, and to precisely not necessarily name that as being Chinese. And you know, what this, this whole issue, you know, back to state you know, the beginning is, you know, in ethnography, if you determine in advance who the foreigner is, you know, it's one is immediately undermining one's project. So I think that that was precisely what I was trying to do. So yes, thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so tomorrow, um, I've taken up a lot of your time, and we're already at the end of our conversation but we haven't even scratched the surface of all the <laughs> in the book. Um, okay. <laughs> Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book? Uh, no, I, th- I think you've uh, 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 wonderfully uh, covered everything. <laughs> it's okay. Well, not everything. Thank you. <laughs> thank so, you. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on an amazing book that I think is going to contribute to lots of different fields and for good reason. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Uh, yes. So um, thank you
0: for asking. I, I have a couple of uh, two book projects that um, I'm working on, um, both um, that sort of come out of this project but one of them I've sort of been working on since graduate school one of them um, the one that comes sort of more directly out of this project of, of, of Savage Exchange is um, is a sort of continuation uh, of looking at literary and economic practices with the rise of the Silk Road um, you know the more I sort of talk to people the more or the more texts I read the more Interesting, um, the sort of later Han and sort of, uh, you know, Six Dynasties and and Beyond Period looks and thinking about um, transformations of genre, cross-cultural transformation of genre, new media and different ways, especially with the rise of Buddhism, of of thinking about the use of metals, um, you know, massive statues or bullion, you know, these sorts of issues that um, is also being studied by sort of comparatists um, or by people in other cultures, you know, at, at exactly this time. Um, you know, I was thinking of, uh, uh, you know, people work on, so the, you know, the Christian um, economy and so forth. So I'm, I'm interested in, you know, thinking about this, uh, uh, what's going on across the Eurasian continent at this, at this time, but, it's, you know, especially um, across um, China's relationship with other literary uh, um Trade exchanges uh, at this time, and the second project is um, actually—it's quite different. It's—it's it's, it's on the modern invention of the idea of the Silk Road. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, sort of on uh, the modern idea of pre-modern globalisation since sort of the coining of the term uh, in 1877 by Um I'm think so. I've, I've done um, a fair amount of work over the years um, by uh, about this—the this transformation of this idea. Uh, over about a century. Um, it's, it's, been, it's very different in different discourses as to, to the way we use it today. And I, I'm trying to trace a genealogy of that.
1: Great. Well, well, good luck with that as well. That sounds great. And thank you so much for making the time. It's really been a pleasure tomorrow. Thank you
0: so much, Carla. I appreciate that.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.